morning. Thanks for being here today. I uh, would like to begin by asking you the most important question that can be asked in your life. And that's an assumption on a lot of things, but based on the gathering of God's people, I'm assuming that a, a large portion, hopefully a good, healthy majority of you in this room claim Christ as your Savior. And if that is the case, then the most important question you can ask in your life is as follows. What is it that causes someone to persevere in their faith to the end? What is it that causes someone to persevere in their faith to the end? you've been in church world, if you've been a Christian for any period of time, you know that that is not how every Christian story finishes. That sadly, there are littered throughout your own past, throughout the past of the church, story after story of those who began well and didn't finish. And you can probably go through that at a personal level, and you could go find, sometimes we go, that person walked away, and you go, yeah, I, I'm not surprised, right? I'm, I'm disappointed, but I, I wouldn't have guessed them to have a really solid foundation to begin with. It's not surprising that when things got difficult, they walked away from faith. There are plenty of those stories, but there are also instances where you're completely blown away. That, that person was a pillar of the church. Someone that I looked up to. And I, I have many friends from my Bible school days that I would have, were more talented, more influential, had incredibly strong faith that have now gone completely off the rails. And I, I'm, I'm just so shocked by this. What caused them to not persevere? You can do that at a personal level. We can also, it's probably not very hard, for us to kind of think about that at a big, broad, notable Christians level. I can go through the list of those who have started really well and been found to be a great disappointment. Through the nature of a few jobs that I had working for some conferences, I've gotten to meet a good handful of notable Christian leaders. And none of it's very lengthy. More often than not, it's like a 10, 15-minute car ride with just me and one other person. But frequently, when some of those leaders fell from their pedestal, you went, yeah, I'm not surprised. Even in a 10-minute car ride, I, I wouldn't be surprised by that. But there's also times I'm completely blown away, absolutely shocked. The standout example from that group of people that I have met in my life is Ravi Zacharias, who I got to ride in a car with, just he and I, for 15 minutes. And I would tell you and maintain to this day, the sweetness of Jesus was on Ravi and ministered to me in a very, very short period of time. And when he passed away, I thought, there's someone who finished well. 
until it was revealed that he didn't. Very, very shortly after he passed away, what was revealed about Ravi's life is that he was living in perpetual sin. And so what causes someone to finish well? If you are in Christ, if you're drinking and eating at the Lord's table to remember your Savior, this is a question you must ask yourself. How do I see this to the end in a way that honors God? What is it that causes someone to persevere in the faith to the end? Now, if you are a keen reader of your Bible, you should not be incredibly surprised that there are people who fall away. If you think of the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, three out of four types of soil have a conversion experience. But it is only one type of soil that sees that through to the end. So you have all kinds of people in the, the rocky soil or in the thorny soil that, that sprout up and look like they're doing well, but they don't follow through. And so what is it that causes someone to persevere? The Apostle Paul is going to pull the curtain back on that question today. And it's, it's written in the negative, but we'll get to see it in that negative and in the positive side as to what causes someone to fall away and what causes someone to persevere by antithesis. If you have a Bible, we're in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 17, and we'll be going through chapter 4, verse 1 today. If you would, stand together as we read out of respect for the Word of God. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we long to be those type of people that persevere to the end. Through your word and your spirit and the fellowship of the body, Lord, would you move us closer to that goal today? We pray in the name of your son, Jesus. 
Amen. You may be seated. Three points today. We are going to consider first the Christian call, second the Christian divide, and third the Christian conclusion. And we begin with the Christian call, and you are called to imitate. Verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me, right? Paul, very straightforwardly, speaks to his audience, this small Philippian church, and says, you need to to look at my walk and you need to follow after it. And we have great insight into Paul's walk at this point. He's willing to lay his life down, right? Be poured out as a drink offering. He considers nothing of gain that he has earned if he loses Christ. He has a a cross-centered existence that he is calling the Philippian believers to imitate. Now, we are creatures of imitation. I don't know if you know this, but it's one of the things that makes humans as a species very unique. We are able to see something that is working in someone else, or even more mind-blowing in terms of the natural world, read something that someone else has done long ago or in different ages and learn from it. We imitate. We are incredible imitators. It is just a gift that is born into us, but it really is only a gift if you are around people that are helping that be good, right? If you're around someone that's worth imitating, my wife and I first got married. We were living out in the West Coast, and we invited one of her coworkers over for dinner, and, you know, we were newly married. We didn't, we didn't have any chairs, so we all sat on the floor. We didn't know that, that you shouldn't invite someone over if you don't have any chairs. I'm like, I don't know. Just come and sit on the floor. That's what we do. We sit on the floor. And, you know, th- we're in Oregon, so they were vegans, and we don't know how to cook for vegans, uh, so it's tacos, and you just put whatever you want on that. But they brought their two-year-old with them, and we don't have any kids at this point, and so we don't have any, right, toys. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever been in one of those environments on either side of that. As a parent in a home that doesn't have toys, or as a home that doesn't have kids, and then kids invade. It's a, it's a little bit unsettling. But we had, like, you know, a, a handful of, like, backyard game ball type things. So we pull out a little ball for this kid. He's two years old. You know, he can kind of talk. So he starts grabbing the ball and he's throwing it. But every time he throws it, he drops an expletive every single time. And at first we like tried to ignore it. Like, Just pretend like that's not happening. And he, every single time he'd throw, we had one toy, one game, he played it over and over again. And he said the same conclusion every time, right? And pretty quickly, his parents go, yeah, he's saying what you think he's saying. And, right, they have to admit it. And then they go, we don't know where he got it from. At which point, you, in your head, you go, I'm pretty sure I know where he got it from. (laughs) I know exactly where he got that from. We are imitators. We just pick things up that we hear. He's two years old. He didn't get it from playing basketball down at the park. I know where he got it. We just pick things up. The people that we spend time around are going to rub off on us for good and for bad. And Paul looks at the Philippians and says, 
follow me because I am the one who is chasing after Christ with reckless abandon. Now, this section of the book really it, it closes the main argument, which opened in chapter 1, verse 27. And there's a bunch of callbacks, if you will, to that verse. There, the main section opens with this command, let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You keep going so that whether I see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Well, you see the conclusion in chapter 4, verse 1, stand firm. It's a little lost to us in the English, but the same root word that is translated in 127, let your manner of life be worthy, is th th that being the verb in 127, is used as a noun in verse three, chapter 3, verse 20, is translated as be a citizen. So, so Paul is bookending his big argument here that opens and closes the main section of the book. So when he tells us to be imitators, we're to go back to what are we to imitate? A life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. The truth of what God has done for you in Christ Jesus is to be reflected in the manner in which you live. It's not just some hypothetical, theoretical thing that just exists out there. It is to permeate down into every corner, every nook of your existence to the point that you are a reflection of the gospel. You're an imitator. To that end, I ask you the logical question, actually a couple of them first, who are you imitating? If you were to try to take stock of your life, who would be the person that you are most closely following after in the way that you live? This is one of, by the way, the many benefits of being in a local church. You will find friendships of people who are worth imitating. You'll find a concentrated dose of those who are pursuing Christ to such a degree that it is worth saying, I want to live like that. I want to follow them. I might make a suggestion to you. You, you should have somebody like that. And I'm, I'm always biased by the pages of history. The... the um, the notion that it needs to be a really formal, what we call discipling relationship now, is a relatively unique thing for the church historically. And ages past, that was j you just spent time with them. It didn't have to be a formalized discipling relationship where you ask somebody, will you, you literally, you just spend time, right? You, the imitation happens as you just live life with those who are pursuing Christ. So fill your life up with those who are pursuing Christ, and they will help you lead your life towards the gospel of Christ. So you should have those people in your life. Let me make a, a second suggestion. Find a deceased mentor as well. Find, find someone who wrote journals. Find a hero or a heroine of the faith. Someone who put down their behavior and their thoughts for you to peruse over and grapple with and help them lead you in gospel imitation. 
Find somebody. There are many great examples. Go find one. Something that interests you. There's got to be something. There's a lot of human history. All right. So that's the first question. Who are you imitating? Second, and this is implied. It's not really uh, from the text, but it's a, a, a logical question to deduce as we read this. Is your walk with Christ worth imitating? What would the church look like if everyone imitated you? Would our church be closer to Christ or further away? What would your family look like if all of your kids, if your spouse, if your, your siblings and your cousins, if they all took their pursuit of Christ as a reflection of yours? And that's a humbling question, is it not? If your closest people around you modeled their faith after yours, would you be happy about that? Find someone good to imitate. Be someone that is worth imitating. Now, there's a second piece to this Christian call, and Paul gives it here. You are to join in imitating me, but be careful here, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to to the examples you have in us. So you don't just blindly pick someone and go, there's the person I'm going to imitate. I'm good for the rest of my life. You need to imitate the right person. You need to take good account of who is worth pursuing, who is worth copying your life after. We will all imitate someone. Imitate someone who's worth imitating. Roman philosopher Seneca said this, let us choose men who teach us by their lives, men who teach us what we ought to do and then prove it by their practice, who show us what we should avoid and then are never caught doing what they have ordered us to not do. Choose a guide on whom you admire more when you see him act than when you hear him speak. That's what Paul is suggesting here. Yes, you are to imitate those who are following Christ, but you are to watch them closely. Take heed. Are they setting an example that you would want to imitate or not? Find someone who is worth imitating. And Paul has been showing his cards wholly to this group of people already, right? He's, one, been pointing to himself, right? Philippians 1, 2, you know, he, he starts describing his own gospel journey, the pursuit that he has. You see in Philippians 2, 3, or uh, uh, 3, 2, excuse me, that he, he goes on this extended, look out for this group of people you should follow. What should you do? Those who are pursuing the cross of Christ with reckless abandon, nothing else is worth it. Those are who you want to pursue. You see, he points to Timothy and Epaphroditus in chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. These are, these are godly men worth pursuing. And then ultimately, chapter 2, verse 4, let each of you look not to your own interests, but also the interests of others. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You are to imitate Christ. So it's not just a blanket call for imitation. It is a guided, specific call for the imitation of those who are reflecting Christ. That Christian call is to be a reflection, a, 
a duplicate, copy-and-paste version of Jesus. Those heroes and heroines that you choose are selected with a very high bar. Imitate people with a worthy pursuit of Christ. Brings us to number two, the Christian divide. We start with that Christian call to imitate and imitate those who are worthy. We then have a very, very stark fork in the road. There are some that are worthy and there are some that are not. They begin with those who are enemies. In chapter 3, verse 15, we saw that there are some who, who think errantly. Now, in chapter 3, verse 18, we're going to see that there are many who walk errantly as well. That it is from the thinking to behavior, and it is always that direction. The mind influencing the behavior. So, to imitate Paul, keep your eyes on those who are walking in according to an example with us, but pay attention Because there are many, verse 18, of whom I've often told you, and now I tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. This is a sad truth, church. That there are those who who march under the banner of Christ, but secretly, that, that banner is just a piece of paper taped over their own goals, right? What they are actually pursuing is their own glory and their own ends. And these enemies of the cross that we see here in Philippians 3 are not outright opponents. They are subtly pulling in a different direction. There are four qualifiers given of them in verse 19. First, their end is their destruction. Second, their God is their belly. Third, they glory in their shame. And fourth, their minds are set on earthly things. So, Their end is their destruction. We know their ultimate conclusion. Those who are pursuing their own glory are not going to end in a glorious relationship with God. They're going to end in their own self-destruction. Second, their, their God is their belly. And there's a little bit of debate on this one. I think the best way to understand this, if you have a Bible, is to flip over to Romans 16. don't have one in the chairs in front of you it's on page 950 a little bit to the left if you're in Philippians similar type of type of uh, warning passage here for Paul for the church in Rome and in verse 17 he tells this little beleaguered church I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught avoid them all right avoid those rabble rousing doctrine people verse 18 For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So I I don't think this is necessarily, although some would suggest that this, their glory or their God is their belly is a a reference to uh, Jewish dietary laws. I, I think it's really more closely related to what we just saw in Romans 16, right? That their appetite is not for the things of Christ, it's for themselves. They don't serve Lord, they serve their own desires, their appetites. 
And I think that was probably the best way to understand this qualification of the enemies of the cross in Philippians 3. Their God is their belly. It's whatever satisfies them. Third, they glory in their shame. Here what we find is that what they should be absolutely ashamed of, they're proud of it. They promote what is shameful. They post it. Draw attention. Look what I do. Now, again, there's a lot of debate as to what exactly Paul is referring to here. I, I don't think it's worth even giving a conjecture because the abstract is sufficient. You don't, you don't need to go far to find someone who is in Christ, claiming Christ. Just pull up your browser. You can type in all kinds of things, and you'll find pastors, Christian leaders, who say, I know what the Bible says. In it. But here, let me tell you why that's not what the Bible means, right? Don't pay attention to your lying eyes. How dare you? Let me, let me go ahead and inform. It's that type of, of bait and switch type of thing. They are elevating, glorying in what is named and rejected as shameful by the Almighty God. You can find many a church, many a Christian leader who has abandoned the pursuit of the cross for the appetite of their belly to elevate what should be shameful. Is this not the sad state of many, many churches? And I don't say that to, to suggest, look at these, these people that are, are so awful and worthy of, of our hate and scorn. I, I'll let God deal with the, the judgment that is coming. That's not something that I think I can hold righteously. I know that I can't, actually. But it is worth you knowing and saying, that's not something for me to pursue just because the word church or Christian is on it does not immediately make it something to pattern your life after. I'd say that for here as well. If you, if you find coming from this pulpit or a Sunday school classroom or a conversation with somebody, something that is contrary to what the Word of God clearly teaches, you go with the Word of God. Go with those who are making much of the cross of Christ, not those who are trying to find a way to satisfy and make what their preferred desires are acceptable. Go with Christ. Very good, easy rule of thumb. Finally, and this is really the umbrella term that qualifies this group of people, their minds are set on earthly things. Their minds are set on earthly things. They've exchanged the glory of heaven for the much weaker glory of earth. It is the exact opposite of what Paul has been instructing all of this book to be, right? Have yourself the mind of Christ. You're to fill yourself up with the cross and with the heaven and get, don't worry about all of the earthly accomplishments. All of that is rubbish unless I have Christ. That's Paul's instruction. This group goes, yeah, but what about all that earthly stuff? We really like all of that, that attention and that glory. I'd like a little, a double dose of that. And so they've wandered away from the gospel to pursue lesser things. They are giving the exact opposite message of Paul. 
They're an anti-apostle, right? It's not outright opposition. They are still claiming Christ. But if this, whoever Paul is describing here, and there's some debate on that, it's, it's not the, the group in, in chapter 1, verse 15 and 16 and 17 that, that are still preaching the gospel, but they're doing it with bad motives. It's not that group. It's probably somewhat related to what we saw in the beginning of chapter 3 with the, the circumcision party, but it may not. There's some debate there, but it, it, again, it really doesn't matter. There are those who have abandoned the cross. And so if that... The, 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 the exact opposite of Paul. If, if Paul and this group would bump into each other on a sidewalk, they'd just disappear. They'd offset each other, right? Poof, gone. They are enemies not by outright opposition. They are enemies by pacified passions. They've settled for something lesser. Their desires get no higher than their stomach. They live for earthly self-fulfillment, exchanging the glory of God for the weaker glory of good things made by God. And we have to ask ourselves, church, is that us? Are we in danger of making too much of the created order at the expense of the Creator? Have we pursued satisfaction in this life? Or to put it in Paul's language, have we become enemies of the cross? Have we become, and, and we all have to ask ourselves this question because we are extravagantly wealthy in this world. There are so many things in our existence that will pull us away from the deeper satisfactions. We are prone, just by nature of where we live and what we have been given, to be too easily pacified. Exchanging the ultimate for the penultimate and filling our appetites with the little things of earthly ambition and leaving no room for a heavenly feast. That is what has happened here. They've become enemies of the cross, not because they say they reject Christ. They are actually embracing Christ. It's just a little bit of Christ and a lot of world. And this is the difficult reality of the Christian walk that many, particularly in environments like the one that we are living in, who start the Christian life, wander away towards the delight of this world. People walk away for all kinds of reasons. The success of this world is so dangerously subtle. We may not even notice it, that we've yielded to the desires of our flesh because we can still show up every Sunday. We can still claim Christ. You can have, a, a, by all accounts, a productive Christian ministry and live for the satisfaction of your earthly desires. Ultimately, what we see, they took their eyes off of Christ. Now, two quick observations here. First, their wandering brings Paul to tears. 
Did you see it in verse 18? I've often told you, and now I, I tell you with tears. When you see this happen, and it will happen, don't run to condemnation. I'm not saying that condemnation is not deserving, but that condemnation in and of itself is not the full appropriate response. Paul once longs to be able to speak of this, of this group in the same way he's talking to these Philippians, right? My beloved, my joy and crown, and yet they are enemies of the cross. And so if you find that somebody has walked away from the faith and your first reaction is, I told you so, then you've missed the heart of the gospel. This is a tearful fall from grace for Paul. D.A. Carson on this passage writes, Paul's vigorous denunciation is not callous or spiteful. He issues it with tears he is grieved to find professing Christian leaders who in fact are idolaters and wretchedly lost. For our part, we must not become people who denounce but do not weep. Neither may we become people who weep but never denounce. Too much is at stake both ways. Is, is that not right? When someone wanders away, don't triumphantly say, I knew it. Grieve. Grieve for those who have, have missed the mark, who got pulled away by their own desires and missed the greater glory that they have in Christ. So the first observation, that their wandering has brought Paul to tears. Secondly, there are many of them. Right? Verse 18, for many of whom I have often told you, and now I tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. It's, it's not a, a select few where you go, yeah, that guy and that guy aren't good. Everyone else, we've got it. They've abandoned the deeper desires of the cross. They still have influence. They still have a, a following they still have the, the name of Christian, but they do not live the life of a Christian. They are not focused on the cross. They are instead focused on building little kingdoms made of sand for themselves. Now, when I hear that, when I, was I hope I was reading this this week and studying and preparing and and my instinct when I think about that is to get a little bit scared. To look at the fact that many are going to walk away and I go, how am I going to stay? How in the world do I have any hope to not be with the many? And, and it's a worthwhile question, right? How, and, and really, it's the same question I asked you at the opening here of our, what is it that causes someone to persevere in their faith to the end? How do I not become a part of the many that wander away? I'm not gifted. I don't have influence. 
I don't have a great spiritual heritage. How could I not be one of the few that persevere and do not abandon? So let me go ahead and tip my hand to you, just tell you exactly the answer to this most important of questions. The answer to the enigma, how do you become someone who perseveres in the faith to the end, is that you do not take your eyes off of Christ. Persevering to the end, not being one of the many who start as friends of the cross and end as enemies of the cross, that perseverance is not built on personal pedigree. It is built on continual reliance on Jesus. It is precisely those who have no influence, have no skills, who have nothing that is internal from which to draw upon. It is that group that is more likely to reach the end through perseverance because they are less likely to lean on their own accomplishments. Many walk away, but those who remain focus their minds on Christ and Christ alone. And that's what we'll see just in a moment in the next point. But you see the antithesis here in verse 19. What does this group who wandered focus on? Their minds are set on earthly things. Their minds are set on earthly things. But what we find is that there are no self-made Christians. We are all Christ-made Christians. And it is when we start to get that inverted, when we start to think, I was saved by Christ, but it's me that's holding me on. You're dangerously leaning out over the edge of being an enemy of the cross. Someone who's thinking too much of themselves and too little of Christ. And so church, that is why when we gather regularly, we come to the Lord's Supper. We sing great songs of the wondrous mystery that we have in Christ Jesus to remind you because we are oh so forgetful, to remind you that we are here and we are held by Christ. And if I have any chance of persevering, it is because I am relying on Christ. If I'm going to make it to the end, it will not be because I'm such a great endurance runner. It will be, be because Christ carried me. The way that he carried me to salvation, he will carry me through salvation. And that is what you are called to do. We forget we start to lean on ourselves, we stray from the narrow Christ-centered path of perseverance, and we end up on the poorly built highway of self-preservation and self-glorification. Stay on that narrow road of Christ, which brings us to the second part of this, this Christian divide. There are those who are enemies, but there are also those who are citizens. Verse 20. If that fork in the road, one, the giant superhighway, eight lanes, goes towards self-glorification, the narrow highway that goes to perseverance to the end, those who are citizens of heaven, how do they do it? Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We wait on Christ. I can't accomplish it on my own. We are only passive in verse 20. There's nothing that we do. We await a Savior of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power, not that I have, but the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. It is by letting go of any notion that I can do this and saying, I can't do this. I can't, but I have a Savior that will hold me to the end. I will make much of Christ. We await Him. Now that word right there, that we await Christ, every time it's used in the New Testament, except for one, it is referring to eschatology, to the end times, the hope that we have, and the glory of Christ returning. And if you were at the men's study, I don't know, last fall, I I have a love-hate relationship with eschatology. The hate part of it is, is an old joke. The millennium is a thousand-year reign of peace that Christians like to argue over, right? It's, it, I, I hate that side of eschatology, that we've taken what is meant to be a glorious, hopeful thing in the Bible and said, well, here's my chart. Where do you land? Let, let me go ahead, you know, right? I, is that how many years before this? And then there's this thing that happens. Well, your thing's in the wrong place on that. I don't know what you do. You should get out of my church. And we've taken this glorious, hopeful doctrine of Scripture and we've turned it into this divisive, warlike thing that we just, I don't know. It's, it, the love side of my personal relationship with eschatology is the fact that you are held and that you know the end and you are hopefully awaiting Christ Jesus. I don't care about the order. Put your faith in Christ. The purpose of eschatology is to show you that you can have hope to the end. You know what is going to happen, and you can place your hope in Christ. There are good reasons to have conversations about the order, and I'm not trying to say you can't talk about the order. Do. Think deeply. Read. Struggle with it. It's not easy. But don't miss the truth that eschatology is there for. The, this, the reason the end times are given to us in the Bible is for us to have hope in Christ. And that is what we see in Philippians 3. You have a glorious hope of a coming Savior. Do not let your comfortable life dull your desire for heaven. Await with eager anticipation. Christ is coming to draw us home. And if you do not long for heaven, then you have put too much hope in this world. That is the other side of that Christian divide. You've had those who wander, those who've made much of themselves, but those who've made much of Christ... Those who rely on Christ, those who look to the cross, not to their own accomplishments. Those who come to the table and said, we do this in remembrance because it is not by my work. I cannot do this. I need to be reminded and focused on Christ Jesus. Those who are in that side of it, they will fill their mind with not this world, but the next. We have let the upward call of the gospel draw us out of our worldly passions to delight and anticipate and savor and the truth that we trust in Christ Jesus. 
Heaven is to dominate our existence before we get there. And so back to my opening question, what is it that causes someone to persevere in the faith to the end? We keep our, those who persevere to the end are those who keep their focus on the hope they have in Christ. Which brings us to the final point and the conclusion. This Christian conclusion. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, for my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. Stand firm not on your own ability. Stand firm not on your great intellect. Stand firm not even on the relationships you have within the body of Christ. You stand firm in the Lord. If you want to make it to the end, there's but one way. Stand firm in Christ. It is in Christ that it is possible for you to persevere to the end, to not be a disappointing, he started well, but man, he really fell off a cliff. Stand firm. Firm. That, right, you think, when you read Paul on this, you think of, of, of 2 Timothy 4, 7. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. It is that type of command. Stand firm in Christ. And you see that Paul surrounds this final Christian conclusion with all kinds of endearing language, right? He's the, just laying it on here. My brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, my beloved, stand firm. Stand firm in Christ Jesus. Paul is willing them to end well, to stand firm in Christ, to focus their life and their thinking on the hope that they have in Christ. This battle to to finish and persevere well is fought in the mind. Focus on the hope you have in Christ. Those and who, who are now enemies of the cross, those who erred, they set their minds on the wrong thing. And the wrong thing is anything that is not Christ Jesus. Anything that is not Christ Jesus. So church, stand firm in Christ. How? Fill your thinking and subsequently your life and behavior with the person and the work and the glory and the hope of Jesus Christ. If you want to make it to the end, to stand firm in Him, you are to fill your life with the glorious notes of the song of Christ. Let that be us, church. By the power of God, by His indwelling Spirit, and by the glorious work of His Son, Jesus Christ, Lord God, Would you draw us to be yours to the end? Is that not our prayer? Then let us pray. Father, we ask for grace upon grace. It was nothing but your gracious act that drew us in in moments of justification and the, the outset of our salvation. And we ask for that grace to continue to to hold and guide us through to the end. We rest in your Son. Help us never to forget.
We pray in his name. Amen.